Future human visionaries. What tomorrow knows today. Produced in association with the V&A. Welcome to Visionaries, a podcast dedicated to futurological thinkers. We seek out people who are reimagining innovation in their field and ask them to apply their intelligence to emerging trends. Zoe Laughlin is an artist and the co-founder of University College London's Institute of Making and also its materials library. The Institute of Making runs research projects that examine the possibilities of new materials and new manufacturing methods that employ these materials, such as 3D printing. She describes some of the emerging substances she works with and their potential impact on the wider world. I have brought along a few materials with me to talk about things that invite different futures, I suppose. They're real, they exist, they're here in front of me, so they are... um, I guess not futuristic in the sense of their being totally imagined, but as I said, they invite specific conversations about directions in which the future could go and also show a little bit about the processes of making new stuff. Um, I just want to begin with this one though. This is a ceramic ball bearing made from a material called silicon nitride. So this is an incredibly hard ceramic. It's not very heavy, but it basically only diamond will scratch this. Okay, It's in use now. It's a ball bearing in the oil industry and has been developed for sort of really high-tech applications and is very difficult to make things with and may never find a different sort of future. But I think in terms of representing indestructibleness and destructibleness, there's lots of work going into making things that are super something. So for me, this represents this idea of things being more than what they were before and somehow now coming with these labels of super this and incredible that. And that kind of sets a tone for how some of these materials will be described. And that often it's, it isn't new, it's just a new process or it isn't new to one community, it's just... Um, changed context and becomes new in another and in doing that comes with it with surprise and delight and excitement so next up we have a fabric which is 100% steel so this is steel threads that are first of all spun using a magnetic process and making filaments that are the tenth the size of a human hair so unimaginably thin and soft bits of steel that then get twisted into yarns that then have been knitted into a fabric. So lots of ancient processes applied here, and steel is a you know quite a pretty traditional metal nowadays, but really represents what happens when you apply structure and form to certain materials to produce other types of stuff. So you could say this isn't a new material, but actually you end up with an object that has elasticity thanks to its macro structure, thanks to the structure of knitting, to a material which has no, you know, is not necessarily elastic. Uh, next up, I'd like to show you this. Here we've got something which is kind of um, popularly called gecko tape. It's a material which isn't sticky, like it's not going to, it's not like a sellotape. So it's not traditional stickiness, like you'd understand, as I say, with sellotape or something, but. Um, the surface of this material has microscopic hairs on it and these hairs have been engineered to have the same sort of structure as the foot of a gecko. So that is that they are 
these little hairs, and on the end, there's basically a sucker, a little sucky pad. But there's just so many of them on here that collectively they can actually form incredibly strong bonds to certain materials. So they like glass, um, and yeah, they'll like very smooth things. And if they're on a perfectly flat, if I was to mount this on a perfectly flat surface and have a piece of glass, I can actually suspend my entire body weight on a piece just this size. Um, just through the combined collective power of those little sticky pads. But again, kind of represents work being done in what would be called biomimicry, the looking of um, structures within nature and engineering and copying what those structures do to produce new materials. Okay, next, so we go from biomimicry to, well, I haven't come up with a juicy name for what, how we would call this, but I guess it's um, bio-cooperation. There we go, you've heard it here first. This is self-healing concrete. So this is a concrete which has bacteria impregnated inside it, and also food that, that those bacteria like to eat. And they're dormant, so they're basically kind of essentially dead, or they're asleep, you know, these bacteria are dormant. But if they get wet, they wake up, and like all of us, when we wake up, we look around for something to eat. They find the food that's been put in there for them. They start to eat that food, and then they excrete out a material which heals gaps in the concrete. So the idea is that a crack will form, moisture gets in, bacteria wake up, bacteria poo out a material which heals that crack. It's not as if I could snap this in half, dip it in my water here and stick it back together. It happens at a small scale, a scale kind of appropriate to the bacteria. But that's, in, in the majority of cases, that's essentially what cracks are all about. It's about the slow creeping and growing of a crack. Another version of bio-cooperation is this material. So this is a glass scaffold which has been designed to be implanted into the human body and be a scaffold for the growth of new bone. So the idea is that if you, let's say you broke your wrist and you might have had lots of fractures and pins and this and that, in, with this material you can just cut back to a nice clean fresh edge, implant a piece of that material and then seal you up and then your body registers its presence and starts to plant stem cells on it and turn the material and grow on top of the material into bone. So the idea is in let's say a period of two years you don't have an implant anymore, you just have your own bone. And then finally we've gone from something that's it's designed to disappear to something that already has disappeared. In here we have invisible balls. So these balls have the same refractive index as water and that means that light passes through the balls in the same way as it passes through water. So when they're in water you can't see them. I guess I just wanted to end on this one because these aren't new, these aren't scientific, these aren't high-tech these are used by flower arrangers to um, put in vases and stand flowers in and then keep them stable and look like it's just in water. And I guess it's just by me saying, you know, these are invisible balls and how you frame something and what audience you show things to that make things seem like completely new and exciting and pr propose potential futures. But equally, the use of words invisibility and things where we think are unobtainable actually are obtainable. And it's just a question of how you discuss it and frame it. This is Future Human Visionaries. Keep listening to find out what tomorrow knows today. How will new materials evolve in the coming years? Additive manufacturing, 3D printing, new industrial revolution, sharing files, printing things out at home. 
sending the machine off to Africa, printing the machine that then prints themselves, that prints themselves. Like there's lots of visions of possible futures and how technologies like additive manufacturing can bring about a revolution. But um, I like to think about what happens if 3D printing technologies actually start printing at a different resolution, start printing down structures which would traditionally have been at the level of which scientists would have been engineering materials to produce effects and structures. So you could actually print something out that wasn't like anything that was seen before. And often you find, the reason I bought that chain, because it's just a classic example of the type of thing that gets printed out. It's like, isn't this amazing? It's made in one continuous piece. It's not made how you used to make chains. But chains look like that because you had to make them like that. Mm. So now chains don't have to look like that. And I still think we haven't even really begun to get our heads around what we can make because we're so used to having to make things a different way. And once you can uh, manufacture at different scales and with different materials, you can start to produce truly new things that will change our way of thinking about the world. Whether we should or shouldn't print certain things out as well is again starting to come to the fore with the gun question with people releasing the file of being able to print a 3d gun and it's really interesting with materials like graphene as well how something like the economic elements sort of who is doing the research and who's plowing money into this research and there's a kind of same kind of land grab as with the biology world of patenting the genome in terms of patenting things that materials can do and there's a you know famous example of China holding an exponentially larger number of patents about around graphene um, than you know the rest of the world put together probably but definitely the UK so those sorts of statistics alert governments and make business secretaries anxious and things like that but I think they're interesting in terms of what also drives things forwards it isn't always to do with what we want, you know, human need. It's about need for power and money. In respect of craftspeople taking tools, celebrating what they can do and making them their own, I don't think it will change that. But I think it will provide another type of craftsman who can think about how to, who will become expert in that type of tool. Once, you know, you've got a 3D printer, you've still got to get a model together to print off on it. And um, if you don't have an... You know, any CAD skills, you often feel alienated from an ability to produce a thing. So I'm now seeing a rise in lots of 3D scanning technologies that say, okay, here's a glass that you've made a traditional way. We can now scan that by just moving this wand around and there's your 3D model. So there's you know, lots of different ways in which it will democratise, but also be taken over and turned into products in order to you know, make them more prevalent. So the, the bone, for example, you could perfectly imagine. Well, you, this is what happens now. You can, you could, if you had a scan a jawbone, print out the bespoke part, and then they, you'd use that as, to make a mould from to cast the bio material. But equally, you could just then print it maybe from that scan. But equally, as you said about before, with organs, using cells as those fundamental building blocks and printing those. Um, there's a lot of work being done and people are looking to that as potential future. There's already, you know, growing these organs and tissues and things, but then printing them again is just a natural step. But I think it just comes with it with so many questions of essentially if we jump ahead and we say, okay, we now imagine a future where you can bespokely kit out your body and who's allowed to do it. And I think there's just lots of fantastic debate to be had around what would that be like? Do we want it to be like that? Whose permission do we need to ask? 
and do, this, does, do certain countries want to say no and other countries will be saying yes and what will be the dynamics? Should there be greater public discussion about the private development of new materials technologies? I think the, the press and the media own a lot of the, the territory to start it, but then you can never tell what local groundswells will come. I mean, there was what was the most recent story that made me think about it was that test that King's College have devised, a blood <coughs> test that can tell you if the fetus has Down syndrome or not, and it's that much more accurate than previous tests and is not as invasive and risking the fetus. And apparently a similar test was developed in Germany not too long ago and everyone was just like, this is eugenics, we don't want it. Whereas it's been framed here much more as, isn't this great, we'll stop the suffering, we won't have to, these children won't have to be born. But there'll still be families who have to make decisions to terminate a fetus. There'll still be then people who decide to keep it and society who judges them and says, you should, uh, you know, why did you make that decision? They're now a burden on the state. Or there's lots of questions that I think because of the pace of discussion and news and debate, you don't linger on these things for very long in, you know, in the public realm. And there's no real telling which ones will stick in certain cultures and for what reasons. As in, you can understand why in Germany they have they're a little bit more sensitive to these sorts of questions, and so it poked, you know, pressed a few more buttons when that story passed through. And you know, but yeah, it's difficult to say. This recording took place at an event convened by the V&A with support from Z33, the Welcome Collection, and the Arts and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by Future Human in Dalston, London. For more episodes of the Future Human podcast, visit iTunes or soundcloud.com.